own up to what we did wrong in it and hopefully there'll be a reconciliation and a restoration. Tonight we're going to conclude it with this passage, Romans 12, that was read to us by Sheridan. Thank you. And the theme is really about loving one another. It's short, rapid-fire commands. There's something like about 18 of them. And it's kind of hard. Many commentators struggle with trying to find the... There's no connecting point. There's an ancient way of just going, you need to do this, you need to do this, you need to do this, you need to stop that, you need to start this, you need to do this. There's 18 of them. And if there is a unifying theme, then it's to deal with our attitudes and our behaviours towards others. That's generally the theme. And so it fits nicely with this idea of encouraging. I'm going to ask you to pray with me as well as for me. And then we will continue. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have to be able to come together as a community of your people. We thank you for the reminder that we've had tonight, both through song but also through communion, uh, that you have acted in our world to not only reconcile us to yourself but also to uh, establish and reconcile us with one another, to establish relationships and you're building a new community and we're part of the process. You are doing that through your word. So we ask tonight, Lord, that again, through your word, through your word read, through your word spoken, that you will speak truth into our hearts, into our minds, and that our lives will be changed to be more like what you desire for us. Help us to hear, and not just to hear, but to respond, to respond in obedience that you might be honoured, pleased, that you might be obeyed. That's what we're about. We're wanting to please and honour you, the almighty, true and living God. And we ask these things in the very precious and important name of Jesus. And everybody said? So let me be very clear with you that God's word says that we are involved in a threefold relationship. Firstly, with him. Secondly, with one another but thirdly, also with others. And this passage picks up on that very basic New Testament truth, biblical truth. God, one another and others. Some people have the understanding that, well, if I love God, that's it. That's all I have to do. I don't have to do anything with people. No, that's inadequate. God's not pleased with that. Other people have the idea, well, If I'm just good at my relationships, whether that's just in the church or outside the church, I just work on relationships, then that's enough. No, it's not. It's all three. To be fully pleasing to God, we need to be people who are honouring him, pleasing and obeying him, but also loving and caring for one another, as well as caring for and being his representatives with outsiders. This passage, Romans 12, certainly talks about our relationships internally, but it moves on to talk about our relationships externally, of how we should relate to those who are not yet in the faith. In the context of this chapter, Romans 12, Paul has begun by reminding us of God's mercy. Verse 1, I appeal to to you therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy towards us, in view of what God has done for us. The only appropriate response is full and total commitment to him, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, here I am, Lord, I am yours. Whatever you want, whenever you want, wherever you want to send me, I will go. 
It's a God-me, a vertical relationship thing. And the promise is that if we respond that way, then we will experience in our life the overwhelming reality that God's will for us is good. As we submit to him and do what he wants, you will experience God's good, perfect and pleasing will in your own life. It doesn't stop there. Paul then goes on to talk about it's not just this vertical relationship, there's also a horizontal relationship. He says, verses 3 to 8, basically the paragraph before this one, we're all different. Different personalities, different gifts and that we have a role to play in our differences. But then in this paragraph he says, but we all have the same responsibilities. We might be different. Different gifts, different talents, different personalities, different backgrounds, different educations, different races, different but the same duties, the same responsibilities. And he fires off 18 of them in this passage. It's a consistent pattern for the Apostle Paul. He does it in 1 Corinthians as well. When he talks about the gifts, then he moves on to this aspect of loving one another, 1 Corinthians 13. does it in Ephesians 4. He talks about the gifts and then he talks about relationships and responsibilities to one another. It seems that this Vertical relationship with God and giftedness from him is to overflow into my relationships with others. We are to love God and love others. Interestingly, just as an aside, the apostles in the New Testament don't talk a lot about loving God. They don't tend to use that phrase, to love God. They do it, but rarely. They tend more to talk about being faithful or having faith and trust in him or being obedient to him which is all subsumed under what it means to love God but when it comes to the horizontal relationships they do use that specific phrase we are to love one another the New Testament is filled with lots of one another phrases that we'll have a quick look at in a minute this idea though of loving one another love can be a vague idea it's something you can fall in and out of One time I used to believe that when couples who got married and fell out of love, there's two sides to every story and that there is, you know, it takes two to tango and there's no such thing as an innocent party and well, over the years I've had two experiences where young couple got married, married two, three years, young married couple. And in both instances, he came home and said, I don't love you anymore. What does that mean? I don't love you anymore. And what the divorce? And got the divorce. And both times, both the girls, Christians, just devastated. They done anything wrong? And to the best of my knowledge and my awareness of their relationship, no. They are a couple of exceptions to that rule. Of, it's not always two sides to the tango. Sometimes some people just get lost, get confused. What is this thing called love? It's not the chemical reaction thing. It's not this, you know, hubba-bubba feeling. It's not this chemistry only. That's not what the Bible means when it says love God and love one another. It's not talking about that. What's it talking about? Well, in this passage, Paul expands it for us. He explains for us what he means by love. Love is a choice. It's not a feeling. 
It's a decision. It's a choice that we are to make. It's a decision. It's an act of the will. Are feelings involved? Maybe. It's hard for us to separate this concept of love from feelings. We perhaps feel insincere if we're not feeling it. But it's a command. To love is a verb. It's an action. It's something we do, not necessarily feel. Well, in this passage, chapter 12, verse 9, the Apostle Paul says that we are to let love be sincere. What does sincere mean? Well, genuine. The Latins, the Romans, had an expression, which is a beautiful expression, which is where we get our English word sincere from. Their expression is sincera. Sincera. means literally without wax. Is that helpful? No wax. In the ancient world when they used to make pottery, and particularly porcelain jars and cups and mugs and plates and things, in the process of baking it, of firing it, it would crack. So what they would do is they would cover the crack with wax so that they could sell this reasonably expensive item but it was flawed. So the genuine article of where the artisan had completed the plate or the jug or the jar or whatever he was making and it didn't crack, he would engrave on the bottom this expression, sin sera, that means without wax. If you took this plate which had a crack in it, was covered over and then painted over and you held it up to the sunlight you would see the hairline fracture. But sincera meant without wax. It's the true deal. It's sincerely the product of what it's being proclaimed to be. That's what the Apostle Paul means by this word. Love is to be without wax. It's to be sincere. It's to be the real deal. Not pretending or presenting something which it isn't. Not a feeling, but a decision, a choice. The Greek word that Paul uses is the word which comes from our word hypocrite, hypocrites. A hypocrite, a hypocrites, in the first century was a stage actor. It was a guy who came on stage, or a girl who was a a guy, came on stage and they had different masks which they would put on to denote different characters. A Hippocrates was a, an actor with different masks. And so to be a, an Hippocrates without hypocrisy is to be somebody who was without a mask, not playing a role, someone who was real, sincere. Make sense? Paul is saying the love and the choices, the decisions we make is to be like that. We are to be not faking it. He's not talking about feelings. So if you're thinking, does that mean unless I feel it, I shouldn't do it? No. That's not what, Paul's not talking about that. Whether you feel it or not, you are to make the right decision to behave in a loving way towards your brother or sister. You are better off doing it, the right thing, even if you are doing it reluctantly. You are doing the right thing, whether with or without feeling. That's the point. Love has to do with action, not with feeling. Which means 
I can do the right thing for people whom I don't like. That's what it means. I am doing the right thing, the God-honouring, God-pleasing thing towards another because that's what God requires of me. The good Samaritan, when he was helping the victim by the side of the road, may not have liked the person, but he did the right thing. That's what this passage is going to emphasise for us and explain for us that we are to be a people who love one another whether we like one another or not. Sociologists have an expression, it's called praxis, which I find comforting because praxis says whether you like it or not, if you do the right thing, eventually in the process of doing it, the feelings will come. Feelings follow actions. Often we in the West wait for feelings to kick in before we act. So if we don't feel loving, if we don't feel sincere, we don't do it. The Bible seems to go the other way. Make a decision to do the right thing and eventually the feelings will catch up with you. Mother Teresa, for an example, reaching out to the unloving and to the lowly doesn't necessarily like it, but eventually, in the process of doing it, the feelings catch up and you actually then engage with, you enjoy, you love, you feel good about doing. Make sense? So this passage is instructing us that we are to, love must be sincere, that when I am doing something, it's not a feeling, but it's a a decision that I make to help another and I am genuine in that. Now, linked with this, the Apostle Paul, surprisingly to us, says, if love is sincere, then it is also discriminating, hates what is evil and cling to what is good. Because if I am going to love someone... I'm going to do that which is right towards them, which is honouring God, then it means I will also hate that which is taking them away from God. I will hate that which opposes God's work in their life. God is the most loving being in the universe. And the Bible is very clear that he is also a being who hates certain things. He hates what harms our well-being. Proverbs, for one example, chapter 6 says there are six things the Lord hates. No, seven that are an abomination to him. Hates it. He hates haughty eyes. Pride in the heart, revealed in the eyes. He hates a lying tongue. He hates hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that hurry to run to evil, a lying witness who testifies falsely and he hates one who sows discord in a family between brothers. He hates that because of the damage it does in relationships and in people's lives. He hates it because he's loving towards us. God hates adultery because he knows the damage that it gives. God hates divorce because, same thing, the damage which is involved in it. The mindset of love will always result in actions that are in full harmony with God's perfect will for us if we are sincerely loving one another, we will always be moving one another towards a closer walk with the Lord Jesus and walking in obedience to him.
were helping one another to be passionate followers of Jesus, being sold out to him. Now as we work pretty quickly through the rest of this passage, I want you to think about your own self and to think, is this true for me? Am I doing this? Am I doing this always? This is not an issue for me. I've worked on that. I've got it. That's in my life. Or is it um, usually? It's not there always, but it's most often there. And it's something I'm aware of and I need to uh, lift my game on a little bit. Or is it something that I'm a bit weaker in? It's, it's sometimes there. It's usually not there, but it's sometimes there. Or is it even something which is, uh, I can't say that it is there. And therefore I need to repent, change, and I need to make decisions which are going to move me this way. Evaluate yourself against these rapid-fire criteria the Apostle Paul says, how he explains that if we are going to be loving, if we're going to be a community of encouragement, this is how we will be. These are the decisions we'll make. Verse 10, we are to be family-focused. He says that we are to be devoted to one another in brotherly love and that we are to honour one another, devoted to one another, honouring one another. Always, sometimes, usually, not doing it. The Bible is filled with one another. It's about 50 times, whatever the exact number is, I'm not sure, 50, doesn't matter, 50 something times. Let's go to the next slide, Leona. Let's flip through these next ones. All of these expressions, all explaining love one another. You can read accept one another, instruct one another. Next slide. Greet one another. Actually, it's with a holy kiss. You know what the difference is between a holy kiss and a normal kiss, don't you? Rob, Laura? About two minutes, I think it is. Offer hospitality, clothe yourselves with humility, have fellowship with one another, confess your sins to one another. Wow. Pray for each other, carry each other's burdens. Live in peach with each other. (laughs) Usually, sometimes, always, not at all. (laughs) Maybe that should be, what would you think? Peace, maybe? Pray for each other. Pray for each other. Yeah, let's move on, Leanna, thank you. Speak to one another, bear with one another, wait for one another, carry each other's burdens. Forgive one another. (laughs) Family focused. And family means church family. We are to be focused upon one another. Love God. Love others. And if that's all I'm doing, not enough. There's an expectation that I will, we will, be committed to each other. Devoted. That means close-knit, mutually supporting. doesn't mean we like one another. I'm talking about that. But it's talking about I am committed to and devoted to, supportive and assisting. Was it when he prayed, spoke about married 33 years and the obstacles keep coming? I think he was looking in the mirror when he was praying that prayer. (laughs) I don't know how to get out of that hole, I'll just move on. (laughs) Devoted to one another. Good times, bad times, devoted. I've been married for 36 years. And that'll do. (laughs) And there are great times and for Rhonda there are bad times. She is incredibly wicked. 
Rob, you are marrying a sinful woman. Laura, scumbag coming your way. We're sinful. We know that up here, but when we're involved in these relationship things, we chuck that out and we become less tolerant, less forgiving, less aware. This is saying we have to be devoted to one another. I am married to Rhonda and divorce is not an option. Someone asked Billy Graham once, had he ever thought about divorce? And he said no, but he had thought about murder on several occasions. <laughs> it's that level of commitment to one another. It's not an option. We are committed to each other. And that when Christians who fall out, who have disagreements, and it happens, but when one of them parts company and leaves, it's a rending of the body. We've that as a church. That's not the way of God. There's a beautiful thing. Look it up on um, Google. It's the uh, Bayou Tapestry. It's this incredible tapestry of the 1016 battle, Battle of Hastings. And it's, uh, there's one section in it by a guy called Bishop Odo, O-D-O, Odo. And it's the troops in the Battle of Hastings uh, have been discouraged and they're retreating. And it's got Bishop Odo on a horse charging towards them, towards his own troops who were running past him the other way. And he's got this large club and he's waving it and he's donging them on the head. And it says in the text underneath, Bishop Odo encourages the troops. <laughs> That's what encouragement is. It's donging them on the head and saying, we're going that way. It's getting beside people and encouraging them in the ways of God, devoted to one another. Not just, oh, they're retreating. I won't do anything about it. No, devoted to one another means I am committed to be supportive, to be assisting, and to be honouring one another. And not waiting for others to affirm and recognise you, but to be taking the initiative, to be alert to what others are doing and appreciating their contribution and expressing that to them. To be honouring one another. Is this internal family focus? How are you doing? Is it always? Usually? Sometimes? Actually, no, I don't do that. Before I get to the end, I was going to do this at the end, but I'll do it now. When does the service end? When does our coming together time end for some of you it'll end as soon as we sing the last song and it's goodbye good night gone and if you're a newcomer if you're a visitor if you're not yet connected into the family and you're just checking us out well that's you have full permission to do that this is your church family and the service doesn't end when we sing the last song the service ends at least half an hour after that it's not just worship together, it's fellowship together. It's hanging around and having a conversation together and checking with each other. That's part of the deal. That's what God expects and what God wants for us. Now, of course, there are exceptions to that in terms of sometimes something and you've got to leave straight away. If it's an exception, that's okay. But if that's your pattern, that's not the Lord's will or desire for you, for his people as they follow him, to be devoted to one another. Verse 11, Paul gives, and I better go much quicker. Paul gives, next slide, thanks, Leona, three rapid commands. We are to be God-centred. God-centred. We are, when it comes to zeal, the Apostle Paul says, we are to be, what does he say? Not lagging in zeal. 
servants. Literally, he's saying, when it comes to zeal, don't be lazy. Do what God wants you to be doing. In fact, in the spirit, we are to be boiling, bubbling, enthusiastic, energised. How? Well, the passage says, verse 11, in serving the Lord. We are to be involved, active, engaged, connected. We are to be passionate followers of the Lord Jesus. And not just in this context. Passionate follower of the Lord Jesus when I am home with my wife. I'm to love and serve her and she me in a way which is pleasing the Lord. And if there are kids involved, I'm to be zealous and fervent in discipling them and helping them follow the ways of the Lord. I'm to do that in my ministry in the church. I'm to do that uh, at work in those sorts of contexts. Wherever I am, I'm to be a God-centred, God-focused person. That's God's will for us. That's his desire for us. Verse 12, he gives three other rapid-fire commands and he talks about staying on course of following Jesus in this world. It's really, I call it, looking up. In the midst of the world where things go wrong, when it comes to our hope, we are to be joyful. Looking ahead, reminding ourselves that the king is coming. There's going to be a rapture. We're going to meet him in the air and then we're forever with him. There is a place in glory. God has promised us things which he has not yet delivered. We look forward to that. We remind ourselves of it, rejoicing, joyful in the hope that we have and we ought never to take our mind off it. And in this world, there will be pain, there will be afflictions, there will be difficulties. Well, what do you do? Well, you hang on. You're patient. You endure. You wait for God's solution to work his will out in your life. Not being fatalistic, you're being trusting. Your loving Heavenly Father is at the helm. And to that end, when it comes to the matter of prayer, we are to continue. Keep praying. Pray for patience in the midst of affliction. Pray for the Lord Jesus to come, for the kingdom to come. Pray for his will to be done in your life. We're to look up, God-centred, family-focused, looking up to him, for him to achieve his purposes. But we're also... Not just to look up, but we are to look around. Verse 13. And again it comes back to a very practical application. Two commands. When it comes to the needs of the saints, the needs of one another, we are to share and we are to pursue or practice hospitality. Practical. In our relationships with one another. Always. Sometimes. Usually. Sometimes. Not at all. How are you doing? God wants us to be committed to community and to one another. And then it's not just our relationship with God that's counting and not just our relationship with one another. Verse 14, the Apostle Paul introduces this outward focus. He spoke about affliction. Well, verse 14 says, Bless those who persecute you. There will be some who will persecute you. And we don't experience a lot of that in this country, but the time will come when that will increase. Bless them. Do not curse them pretty clear when people are opposed to us persecuting us we are to bless them we are to pray for them and do good to them in fact he goes on in verses 17 and following don't repay anyone evil for evil no retaliation that's God's intention that's difficult because it's part of our DNA it's part of our sinful human nature 
don't know about you, but I like movies, and in the movies, we like it, I like it, when the bad guys get it. We like that. We like justice. And so when things, people do wrong things to us, that old sinful nature, that same DNA that likes the bad guys getting it, we want to assist in that process. We want them to get it. I had a chat with Rhonda today about what happens to a child? What do you do with a child in the playground if a child is uh, belting another one? What happens if the child goes home and says to mum and dad, you know, little Freddie or whatever at school has been punching me? What do you say to your child? When you go tomorrow, you thump him back. You ever said that? That's this old sinful nature. It's the same reaction. What do you say to a daughter, and I had one, when as a young child she used to bite? How do you stop that behaviour? Well, my mum told me you have to bite her. She has to feel the pain that she's inflicting. So I did. I'm much older and much wiser now. I don't think that's the best way to go. <laughs> Electric shock treatment or something else. Is. <laughs> there are different, difficult parental issues. <laughs> the reality is kids fighting somebody in the playground, go to the authorities. Tell the teacher. And the, teacher, the school will have a process where they can implement it and non-violence in response is the way to go. What do you do with a child who is biting another? Don't bite them. Talk to them. Reason with them. And let them have the penalties of their inappropriate behaviour. It's slowly, it's educating them. And I have to admit, I am old school and, you know, it's spare the rod and spoil the child. Belt the hell out of the kid and it'll be fine. I'm not sure that's a sensible response either. You need wisdom. But as an adult, the Bible says and the Lord Jesus clearly instructs, do not repay evil with evil. When somebody does something bad to you, when they cut you off in traffic, when they bip their horn at you or whatever it is that's irritating, don't retaliate the old sinful nature that wants to retaliate. If possible, live in peace with everybody. Don't take revenge, leave room for God's wrath. In fact, the passage goes on to say, if your enemy, the person who is hurting you, the person who is opposing you, if your enemy is hungry, what should you do? Feed them. If they're thirsty, give them something to drink. And the passage says, quoting Proverbs, because in doing this, you will heap burning coals on their head which doesn't sound very loving. Some commentators think what the Apostle Paul means, or the Proverbs author means, is that by not retaliating, in fact, you're preparing them for more punishment in hell, pouring burning coals on their heads. I suspect that's not what the passage or the proverb means. I think, rather, it's a very strange way of expressing they will feel ashamed, they will feel convicted. You're not retaliating, you're being kind and good to them in the midst of their awfulness. In that process, you're giving God the opportunity to work in their life. This is the sort of response God is calling us to do with outsiders. Love him, love one another, 
and to be loving towards those who are even opposing him. As redeemed citizens of the kingdom of heaven, followers of the Lord Jesus, we live in this world which is soaked with evil, the influences all around us as well as within us. And the battle is constant. There is a constant influence to pressurise us to conform to the ways of the world, to do what we used to do before we were followers of the Lord Jesus. This passage is calling us and God is calling us to be different, to be a community of encouragement that's going to be loving, committed, focused, not retaliating, resisting evil, but also doing good. In the church, God's new community, we are to be committed to one another. That's verses 15 and 16. Rejoice with those who rejoice. New South Wales 1, rejoice with me. (laughs) Word of knowledge, perhaps. And to mourn with those who mourn, I mourn with you. (laughs) To identify with people in their joys and sorrows. So Rob, commiserations. Laura, rejoice. Having mentioned that, in a fortnight from tonight, there is, well almost, 13 days from today, there is another wedding. Sam and Liana. One o'clock on Saturday, the end of June. You're all invited Bring your gifts, show your commitment to one another. The Apostle Paul ends verse 16. He says that we are to live in harmony with one another. Listen to this. We are not to be proud or conceited, but we are to associate with people who are different, whom for whatever reason we might might think are lower because they're different. passage says harmony not pride, not conceit, reaching out, embracing one another, thinking of one another. It's an incredible passage which challenges us in terms of our commitments. We are to let love be sincere, devoted to the family, devoted, God-centred, honouring him in all circumstances of life, looking up, staying on course, looking around, and including, as well as looking out and blessing. How are you doing in this desire that God has for all of us? You're nailing it? Always. Usually. Some things I need to improve. Sometimes. Got a lot to improve. Or I'm not even on the same page. There's lots there for me to do and I need support and help and prayer. So let's do that. Let's pray for each other. Let's pray together.